0: Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, Editor Madhu and Christian, and I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague, Ned Russell, who covers airlines for both Skift and Airline Weekly. Today, we talk about Southwest's operational meltdown, Delta's third quarter earnings, and United's planned work on its triples, Pratt Whitney-equipped 777s. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hey there, Ned Russell. How are you?
1: Hey, Madhu. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. We have a lot to get to this week. Um, it's the first week of earnings in the U.S., kicked off by Delta, which we'll get to in a minute. But we also have a massive operational meltdown to get to talk about.
1: Yes. What is normally a quiet period for airlines ahead of earnings is uh, has been led by Southwest Airlines. But due to their irregular operations they canceled nearly 2000 flights over indigenous peoples day weekend in the US and it, you know really uh, highlighted just the challenges airlines face with, uh, with staffing and getting people back in place uh, when they're when their ranks are thin
0: yeah absolutely i mean this is to say this is a meltdown is almost an understatement it was um it was of just a straight up operational disaster for southwest and but let's let, before we talk about it let's talk about what it was not now, right-wing media in the states and Twitter, there are a lot of political figures and commentators on Twitter who are saying that this was a um, the it was a pilot sickout and sort of an unofficial job action on the part of pilots uh, in the wake of Southwest mandating vaccines for all its employees. This is what it was not. I mean, there's the the over the last few years, Southwest and its pilots unions, the Southwest. Is, Airlines Pilots Association SWAPA have disagre- have agreed about very little, but they agreed about this weekend, this past weekend, and that is that pilots did not did not engage in any kind of job action. So that's what it was. You, you,
1: you have the union and the airline agreeing on something, which uh, is always, uh, for, especially when when relations are a little uh, frayed. That's it's um, you know it, it's a resounding statement that you know, it is not, this was not a job action though. I, you know, I have heard that that Southwest was relying heavily on uh, reserve pilots to staff some of its flights and, and, you know, they, they were unable to fill some of them, but that's not really a job action. Just, just not having the staff there to to take some flights.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, and to, for, just as a little background, Southwest, because it's part of the civil reserve air fleet and, um, you know, carries mail and has DOD contracts, um, is a federal contractor. And per the Biden administration's mandate that all federal employees and contractors be vaccinated by December 8th, Southwest followed suit, like most U.S. carriers. So um, the pilots union came out and said, we support vaccines. We just don't like the mandate because they want to bargain for more.
1: Interesting how it's becoming a bargaining chip.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the SWAPO was very explicit. It said, you know, we support mandates, but... Southwest flouted the collective bargaining agreement, and um, we think this is something that should be bargained, which is what the the National Union, the um, Airline Pilots Association, has also said. Um, so this wasn't a job action. That's what we know it wasn't. What we don't know it was is we, we just don't know what it was, really. I mean, Southwest, as we were talking earlier, Ned said, blamed— um, the air, tra- air traffic control issues in Florida, but the FAA immediately came back and said, well, there was weather and there were FAA, there were um, air traffic control staffing issues. No other airline was affected as badly as Southwest.
1: And those were limited to Friday, which was the beginning right. of the weekend, uh, which it's hard to blame operational failures over the course of several days to, to one about on Friday. You know, everything I've read is, is, you know, that may have been a catalyst for, for yeah. the, the, the meltdown, but it wasn't the the root cause. You know, John Oscar up there current had a deep dive into into this today. And you know, speaking to employees, it just sounds like you know, Southwest staff are harried after, you know, a busy summer where things have ramped up and while they didn't furlough any staff, they did let go. Uh, a lot of people left voluntarily, you know, and their staffing numbers are down about seven percent compared to twenty nineteen. Right. So it's um you know, it it sounds like this is just an airline, you know, at its sort of wits end, so to speak, uh, and and you know, something like ATC delays that really didn't affect anyone else just prompted a meltdown.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Southwest, like all airlines, is is much leaner than it was. Demand is coming back. We saw this over the summer with Spirit and American, and uh, also having similar problems. You know, they all, as you said, Southwest didn't furlough anyone, but it did. Put um, give people the option of taking extended leaves of absence and when those people were recalled they had to be retrained there's a shortage of simulator um, instructors i mean it just it was a cascade like a i hate to use the cliche perfect storm but it really was i mean the operation was stretched really thin over a holiday weekend there was not enough reserve crews and staff are on hand and um and there's also, you know, a structural problem which we were talking about that Southwest that makes Southwest uniquely prone to this and that's that it ha- it's not a hub and spoke carrier. Absolutely.
1: So United uh, for those of uh sorry, Southwest for those who are unfamiliar runs a point to point airline uh you know they do have sort of five to 10 large bases but the operation is very point to point. So a plane that starts the day in Oakland could make four or five stops in the day and end the evening in in Orlando or or Boston or something. You know, whereas at a network carrier, hub and spoke carrier, it's going to, you know, planes are going to be going back and forth, you know, Chicago to Albuquerque to Kansas City and stuff. So, you know, Southwest, you touted this. They said, it, I think it's almost 50 percent of their aircraft or is it 40 percent? Very 40%. high number. 40 yeah. percent of their aircraft touch Florida on any given day. This was uh, what CEO Gary Kelly said. Correct, Madhu? Right. Yep. You know, so. That is also, that creates challenges when you have these operational delays. Crews are out of place. You have to get them, you know, relocate them to where they're needed. But if they're not sitting in a base and you've got crews in Nashville and Boise and Salt Lake City and Omaha, but you need them in Orlando and Dallas and Baltimore, you're, you're challenged. you're. Get significant challenges and this has been a tale of the whole time for major airline meltdowns i remember the same problems happened when uh jeff blue had their valentine's day uh-huh. meltdown in 2008 was. there was talk and we talk about crews being out of place right. and everything again and again
0: yeah crews were out of place there and there were um and usually you know an airline southwest size would have reserve crews but because so many people have left or are on leaves of absence they did not have those reserve crews in place to, that could step in so it was it just cascaded and also the other thing we can't forget is southwest ha- has kept a pretty robust network going during the pandemic but it's it's frequency it slashed its frequencies and southwest was known to be four times for you know having great depth in its schedule so before, if you were trapped in Denver and you needed to get to Baltimore, say, there might have been half a dozen or more flights a day between those two cities. That Southwest ran, and now you know there might be just a hand like two or three. I'm, not, I'm this is all hypothetical, but the point is they reduced their frequencies so much that passengers were stranded in one city could not just take a later flight later in the day. I mean, those, the later flights were probably booked with their own passengers. So it was just a mess. Right. It was a complete mess. The interesting thing, though, from a PR front is that I've been watching a lot of news, TV, TV news. <laughs> and um, who does that? But I've been watching local TV news. And, they, you know, they've been doing sort of on-the-street interviews of, with Southwest passengers, and no one seems to hold it against the airline, which is odd. So you know, we love Southwest. We hope they can work through this and get us to the wedding we're planning to go to. Um, I mean, that really
1: goes—that's a real statement of the loyalty of Southwest customers. You know, and and it's true. Most of my friends that fly Southwest on a regular basis love Southwest. You know, for even you know, for whatever reason they have. So, and I I mean, what they're saying, what you're citing there, Madhu, really shows that if people, even if they miss the wedding, they're still loyal to Southwest.
0: It's, it's very, very different from how some other airlines might have been treated um, or the reactions they might have gotten. So, hey, Ned, let's squeeze in a quick break here. And we are back at the Airline Weekly lounge. Thanks for joining us. And we were just talking about Southwest, and now we're going to talk about the first major U.S. carrier to report its earnings, and that was Delta.
1: That's right, and they actually had a pretty good third quarter, Madhu. I was looking at the numbers; they they reported their first pre-tax profit, uh, excluding the federal aid that they received, of two hundred and ninety some odd million dollars in the third quarter.
0: Which so it was two hundred sixteen.
1: Two hundred sixteen. I just gave them a couple extra <laughs> eighty million dollars there, but it, it it looks like it was a fairly good quarter for Delta.
0: You know, it was, well, it wasn't. It wasn't right. I mean, the the quarter started out great. Um, and re- remember, you know, the quarter starts on July 1st. And it started out really well. There was massive summer demand. People were taking vacations. They're going all over the country. And then by the middle of August, the the variant, as Delta Airlines calls the Delta variant of the co- coronavirus, um, the Delta variant uh, started to spread around the country and, you know, cause a fresh outbreak of COVID-19. And that really affected Delta's um overall quarter. And yes, it eked out a profit, but it um, it really had to, it saw demand plummet in August and September. And what was interesting, Ned, to me was that, you know, when in the last earnings call Delta had, which was sort of the, around the middle of July, they like all the, the major carriers were super optimistic that business travel would come back after Labor Day, which is in early September in the U.S., and Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta Today, just said – this is Wednesday, October 13th – just said uh, it didn't come back.
1: Well, clearly it didn't because it, everything slowed down. It's it's funny. You talk about that, the optimism. I remember chatting with you in, in July after some of these calls being like, it just feels too optimistic for for even then what we had seen in the pandemic, the ups and downs. And that was really before the Delta variant had really – uh, taking a bite out of demand in the U.S. Yep. Did Did Bastian say when he thinks business travel is going to come back?
0: Yeah, he thinks by the end of next year. Um, okay, next year, he did say, you know, business travel is starting to climb back up. But um, a problem they're facing, like every com- um, airline, is that uh, a lot of companies have not reopened their offices, and some have pushed the reopening back until January. So it's really kind of hard to do business traditional business travel when you don't have an office to have meetings in. Um,
1: Absolutely. You know, that sounds similar to what I spoke to, you know, United CEO, Scott Kirby the other week, and he expects the um, business travel recovery to sort of resume in January, which coincides with a lot of office reopening. So, um, yeah. and we're also getting towards the end of the business year and, and, companies that might be see the opportunity like why start using limited funds at this point when we could just start a new year.
0: Yeah, but Baston reiterated something he said earlier in the pandemic, and that is that the business travel that Delta is seeing and saw even when the variant was spreading was from small and medium-sized enterprises and not from their managed travel accounts. Um, so uh, he sees that trend continuing through the rest of this year.
1: Another thing that you you, you noted in your story on Delta Earnings Madhu, was uh, the, the rise of, of premium leisure. Tell us a little bit more about
0: that. Yeah, so this is really interesting, and some echoes something Carsten Spohr said about a year ago that um, <clears throat> Lufthansa was surprised to see leisure passengers in Lufthansa's first class. Uh, Delta is seeing the same dynamic now, um, and leisure travelers are taking first and um, or Delta One or whatever they call it, the premium cabin, as well as the new premium economy cabin which Delta had started rolling out in 2019. Um, and what was interesting to me, Ned, was that there were sort of two reasons that Bastion and company gave for this. Well, the first was that you know people have discretionary income, there are no business travelers, so the seats are available and they're buying those seats and they wanna sort of treat themselves on this vacation after 18 months of being cooped up. The second was one of access, which I thought was really interesting. So that means you know before the pandemic, Managed travel accounts got first crack at those business seats and <clears throat> probably occupied a lot of them and shut out leisure travelers. And, you know, of course, some were reserved for upgrades for um, for, for um, high-status um, passengers. Um, but now these, there are more of these seats available to the general flying public, and people are paying for them.
1: That is interesting. And, you know, and like you said, it echoes something we've heard from Lufthansa, also from Air France. So mm-hmm. I've, you know, they have talked about uh, higher demand for, for leisure travelers booking their premium cabins in and out of Paris. So, you know, it it, it sounds like this might be a recovery trend we see going forward. And, and Delta was willing to put its sort of money where its mouth is, too. You noted that they're going to be investing in more premium seats on their aircraft coming out of this.
0: Yeah. Bassman said it was a, quote, epiphany for the company. And... Going forward, the, the you know, as it pulls aircraft out of the desert, as it takes delivery of these what forty odd new aircraft used new to them aircraft. Gently used gently aircraft used as they put it. So new to them aircraft and um the 53 A321 NEOs, it's going to Bastion said they're gonna have they're gonna fly more premium seats. Um so that is uh that's great news for those people who can afford to to book a premium trip uh, ticket for their, uh, their trip to Disneyland. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't it's know. A- I'm still not
1: ready to take my three-year-old in a, in a business class seat, but you know, <laughs> I guess some people are.
0: Right. Well, <laughs> I definitely would be, but, um, but yeah, we digress. It's a, it's an interesting change and it's something that Bastion and company think is structural.
1: Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to watch that trend as, as we come out of the crisis.
0: The third thing, and let me add one more thing. And this is, I guess, the reason they had the epiphany is that, you know, Delta, like all U.S. carriers, hasn't has has been hasn't been able to fly its wide bodies on their normal routes. So, you know, throughout the pandemic, have been flying wide body as, on domestic routes. And those wide body aircraft have, you know, two premium cabins usually, if they have a premium economy cabin. So suddenly there's a lot more seats between Orlando and Atlanta or, whatever, or like Atlanta and Salt Lake City. There are a lot more premium seats and um, they've become available and people have been taking advantage of it. Now Delta's going right. to take advantage of that trend.
1: Definitely. Definitely. No, for sure. It'll be interesting to watch.
0: So speaking of wide bodies, Ned, you covered um, something this week. Um, a couple of, uni- uh, we got a dog podcast bomb in the background. I don't know if you guys heard it. Uh, let's just see if one of my cats gets into a fight. If my two cats get in a fight. Um, as happened on a podcast earlier this year. Anyway, <laughs> yeah,
1: speaking of wide bodies, Madhu, um, you know, uh, United Airlines has actually started doing so uh, well, to back up. Uh, United Airlines has grounded a large portion of the 777-200 fleet due to after the, the engine um, the failure. Engine failure over Denver in February on, on one of their Pratt & Whitney powered 777s. And so you know we've been watching this closely to see when those planes would come back and in a memo to pilots earlier this month uh, United said that they've started modifications to to those aircraft so and you know, what's interesting is they're doing this before the FAA has made a decision on what what is going to be needed to put send right. those aircraft hmm. put those aircraft back in the sky and United acknowledged this in the memo they said there are risks with this but they think that this will allow them to return the planes to service uh, much faster than if they wait until the the airworthiness directive comes out from the FAA. And so, they need
0: you, those planes, right?
1: They do. And that sort of dovetails, you know, the, what just drops on Thursday, uh, October 14th, is that United is going to be flying one of its largest transatlantic schedules uh, next summer. And, you know, they wouldn't come Patrick Quayle, their head of international network, wouldn't comment on whether the 777s with the Pratt engines will be flying. But if they're going to be flying one of their largest schedules, it's, you know, matter of deduction, they're going to need the 52-some-odd 777s that are grounded at some point. So, you know, it's, it's they're really, you know, hoping to get those planes back in the air. I think they see some opportunity, uh, you know, low-hanging fruit in terms of capturing revenue and stuff that they could pick up if they can get those flying.
0: Now, how many of those? Uh, do do you know offhand how many of those triple the grounded triple sevens are uh, the high density configuration, which they used for? I'm
1: not sure the exact number. I believe there's around 20 high density triple sevens in United's fleet, but I could be wrong in that. Now, these are the planes that are that are, you know have a small business class cabin, uh, lie flat seats, but you know a. A large economy cabin. Mm-hmm. And United uses primarily on Hawaii flights and hub to hub. So right. you often see them between like Washington and San Francisco and Chicago and L.A. You know, it, um yeah. So, but you know those are a portion a significant portion of the planes that are parked at the moment uh and then the others you know a lot of them already have Polaris cabins and then premium uh-huh. speaking of premium leisure they they definitely want to get those planes flying so yeah united is is gearing up for for what they expect to be a very strong twenty twenty two um with the new routes and, and getting planes prepped to return to the skies All
0: right um interesting, and I'm sure United now, as demand starts to come back online, needs sub. Um, needs those high density that high density lift for its domestic hub to hub flying right?
1: Definitely. I and mean, that's something that they really haven't talked about but you know they're, they're, they' when they were flying you know they have these 300 plus C triple sevens between hubs and you know, they've been using seven eight sevens and and their remaining triple sevens on some of those routes but as international demand comes back, they need those planes to fly internationally. They a lot of the routes that they're going to be launching summer 2022 are going to be flown on on seven eight seven and seven six sevens that have been used on domestic routes. So, you know, they really do need to get more of these planes in the air. Or you know, we we're going to see if if demand returns summer 2022 as it did this summer, and that would arguably be higher, you know, potentially above 2019 numbers. Uh, that you know, it could be you know leaving. I, I'm trying to think of the proper euphemism here, but basically. You know they're leaving passengers behind because they just simply don't have the seats to carry them, or they're, they're spilling them over to competitors. All
0: right. Interesting. Well, Ned, let's uh, let's leave this podcast there for today. I want to thank all of you for listening to the Airline Weekly Lounge. and We'll catch you next week. Thanks, Madhu. Goodbye, Ned. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.